Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also find me on all the major third-party podcast directories. If you want to reach out to me, please feel free to shoot me an email, and you can do that at cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G. E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right, today is November 21st, and I think there's some really interesting stuff that's going on, kind of the background noise, the chatter in college sports post-midterm, and I want to talk a little bit about that today. And as the title of this episode suggests, I want to talk about the importance of the Warnock versus Walker race. And I think a lot of people have just tuned out the news on the midterms. It's pretty clear that the Democrats will have some form of control over the Senate and the Republicans will have technical control of the House. But I think there's some really important dynamics in both chambers and some uncertainty still that we really have to pay attention to, to figure out what these midterm elections really mean for the future of college sports and the short run goals of the NCAA and the Power Five to get a quick hit bill that would end the athletes' rights movement. And so the second part of my title is Lead One versus Lead One. And I want to talk about how some of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have really repositioned themselves at the public relations level, at the rhetorical level, at the propaganda level, but they are still tied to the same endpoint. They're going to land in the same place, and that is ending the athletes' rights movement. And Lead One has done just an amazing makeover. And in my judgment, it has gone full woke. That's part of a, an overall strategy that the NCAA and the Power Five have used for decades, really. And it's also a tactic of higher education, and that is to profess your woke virtue to the outside world. But then when it comes to what you actually do, how you actually behave, those two things don't always align. And, and I think that's particularly true when it comes to the component of higher education, that is big time college sports. I mean, that tension, that dissonance isn't new. It's, it goes back really to the early 20th century, but it is so acute now because of the obvious fundamental tension between the professional product in football, men's basketball, and the stated goals, the externalized goals of higher education. And that's going to be a theme running through a lot of what I talk about going forward. And, but before I get to Walker Warnock and Lead One, I want to just identify some of the things that are going on that are in play that I think are important to pay attention to. I may wind up doing separate episodes on some of these things. I just haven't decided. But I just want to identify a few things that I think are on the radar screen. And some of them are kind of running in the background. And one is this search for the new NCAA president. And it's been a while since I've talked about that. And one of the reasons I haven't really spent a lot of time on it is I don't think that the role of the NCAA president is really that consequential now after the constitutional makeover and the power play that the Power Five made to grab the national office powers, particularly with respect to infractions and enforcement, and have all those authorities sent down to the divisions at the divisional level. So the NCAA president is going to be even more of a figurehead 
under the old constitution and under the leadership of Miles Brand in the early 2000s, then Mark Emmert, the NCAA president had more power than people understood. And, and Emmert and Brand were so good at saying, hey, you know, I'm just a messenger here. I'm just doing the will of the people. But in fact, when it came to exploiting the NCAA's intellectual property, namely the broadcast media rights for the March Madness tournament. The NCAA president had extraordinary power there. And the other thing that the NCAA president used to be able to do that they're really not going to be able to do post-constitutional makeover is to have primary authority over hiring the NCAA's third-party experts. And I talked about that quite a bit in my pay for play series and also actually at the very beginning of the podcast when I was talking about the role of both university presidents and then the NCAA president, but that was an extraordinary power. And so you had Mark Emmert hiring uh, Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc. as the public relations people in conjunction with Don Remy. I mean, Don Remy's role here was so important and he's just sort of faded into oblivion because he left the NCAA in April of 2021 to join the Biden administration. But he and Emmert were really the architects of what I've called the arrogance campaign when the NCAA went on offense in 2019 to try to kill the athletes' rights movement. But it was those guys that hired Bully Pulpit and Brownstein Hyatt and Wilmer Hale and Wilkinson Steckloff and all these powerful inside the Beltway players into the fold to lead their campaign to get for the NCAA and by association, the Power Five, federal protections and immunities from Congress that would make it impossible for athletes to pursue their rights as Americans. The NCAA hired this turnkey ZRG search firm, and that firm is conducting all the substantial consequential job searches across the landscape in, in college sports. They have posted the job description, and according to this subcommittee, of the new board of governors that is focused on the presidential search, we're supposed to have something by the beginning of 2023. So I'm guessing we're probably going to see a short list. And as I discussed in those prior episodes when I was playing the guessing game, I think you're very likely to see a woman. And the reason for that ties into some of the themes that I want to talk about in this episode. And that is that the NCAA and Power Five and all of their narrative launderers out in the commentariat, like Lead One, and, and I would even include the Drake Group here. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Drake Group and a webinar that they conducted last week. But you have gender equity becoming the grand immunity shield for getting what you want, both at the persuasion level and public relations campaigns, but more importantly, in Congress. So I think we're going to see some movement there. And rest assured that before the midterms, the NCAA and the search committee and turnkey ZRG probably had a couple of candidates in mind, depending on which way the midterms went and how they were going to use the new NCAA president as a figurehead at the political level. And remember, when you go back and look at the job search criteria and the qualifications that are published on the turnkey ZRG website, they're clearly looking for somebody with some political chops. Who will that be? I don't know. And have the midterm results affected the strategy there and looking for a kind of a politico to be able to go to Congress and press for the NCAA Power Five interest. So we'll see, but I expect to see women on that list. And as I mentioned before, 
I don't think we're going to see a candidate that's out of the university president's mold. Maybe they'll have one on the finalist list just to do a parade wave to presidential leadership and control, which has been the bedrock of the regulation of college sports at the institutional level, at the conference level, and at the NCAA level. Going back really to the 19. 19- 80s and the Knight Commission's recommendations in 1991. That era is over, I think, and we're moving more and more towards non-educators in leadership positions in college sports. And again, this is going to be symbolic, but I think we're going to see somebody who meets the political correctness and the gender equity check marks. So let's see, what's the next thing? We have the NCPA the National College Players Association, Ramogi Huma's outfit on the West Coast, they're trying to revive the revenue sharing issue. His organization's trying to get some high-profile men's basketball players on board with a revenue sharing campaign and they're wearing something on their wristbands or somewhere on their body that tries to raise awareness of that issue. And it sounds very similar to me, what Huma was trying to do in 2014 with All Players United. And that movement didn't really go anywhere. And you had a very small number of football players that ran really through football interests. You had some players wearing the APU logo on their wristbands. And it it really wasn't a consequential movement because there wasn't buy-in. I'll talk about that at some point. It raises some interesting issues that tie into some of the things that came up at this Drake Group webinar last week about self-help and how athletes can go about trying to take matters into their own hands when all of the stakeholders who were supposed to be looking out for the best interests have basically thrown them under the bus. Let's see. The other thing that happened recently that I think is consequential, that is that West Virginia Athletics Director Shane Lyons, who I identified, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 episodes ago as one of the five most important NCAA insiders because of the multiple hats that he wears across consequential NCAA committees. And uh, again, that was limited only to NCAA insiders. And right now, I think the NCAA is such a shell of its former self that those leadership positions aren't as consequential as they used to be because this is a Power Five show. And that was the very purpose of this constitutional makeover. Another thing that's going to be a point of emphasis across all of these issues that I'm raising right now. But Lyons was fired by West Virginia University President E. Gordon Gee. What a great name. He's also an interesting guy. He's colorful and he's had some interesting kerfuffles over his career as a university president. And he's been around for a long time. He was at Ohio State for a long time. He was at Vanderbilt. Now he's at West Virginia. But Gee said, "Mm -mm, we're pulling the plug here. And what I thought was interesting about that decision, and Gee did a little interview with a West Virginia podcast. It was in-house, in-system, rah-rah, West Virginia. But he made some interesting comments that led me to believe That just as we have seen this movement away from educators or athletics directors and kind of athletics directors, lifers becoming conference commissioners at the power five level or the group of five level, you may now see a movement in the athletics director market away from that mold and the old boy mold. I'm going to talk a little bit about that when I talk about lead one here in this episode and the composition of its members. And it is the ultimate old boy network. It is white, it is male, and it has been largely self-perpetuating. And you have this club, the 
Oh Boy White Male Athletics Director Club, and they just keep churning out clones. And what I heard from Guy is that model really wasn't working for West Virginia. And West Virginia is an interesting institution among the Power Five and within the Big 12. It has a lot of potential, but it's sort of an outlier in terms of where it fits and where it might fit going forward, particularly if there's another round of conference realignment. But I think Guy's trying to get ahead of the curve here. And Guy made some really interesting comments about the work of Brett Yormark, the Big 12's new conference commissioner, who has absolutely zero background in higher education or sports administration. He is from the belly of the entertainment industry, and his job was to try to get as much money for the Big 12 as he possibly could, and he did that. A lot of people think he hit a home run with the Big 12's new broadcast media deals, and all of a sudden, they're back on the radar screen. So Guy was talking about how impressed he was by that, and also the work of Turnkey ZRG, which West Virginia is going to be relying on to find a new athletics director. And that decision is going to be made soon, I think. So it's going to be real interesting to see who West Virginia hires, what the background is, and whether this could be the beginning of a new trend away from the old boy network and into the entertainment industry so that people in the athletics departments really understand what matters right now. And that is negotiating deals and being connected. And that was one of Yarmark's selling points. He is connected in the big time entertainment industry, not just the sports entertainment industry, but the entertainment industry writ large. And you may see a movement towards that. And I also want to reflect back on that point to something that Miles Brand said. This was in the Q&A. I believe it was in his 2006 speech or after his speech to the National Press Club. And he got a question about whether it might make sense because of the increased professionalization and commercialization of football, men's basketball, to have athletics directors who come from a business background. That's how the question was posed. And Brand said, yeah, we're moving towards that anyway. So some of these uh, good old boys who are in the old boy network were uh, more attractive if they had some business background or maybe they'd gotten an MBA or had taken some courses, that kind of thing. It didn't fundamentally change the mold, but I think there was an acknowledgement by Brand as far back as 2006 that the athletics director position requires an increasingly unique skill set. And when you look at how these athletics directors in the nil era have resorted to hiring outside experts to help them do their job, you begin to see that maybe this old boy network isn't really serving the new professional model as well as it could. So I'm going to be paying close attention to that. And that could get real interesting. And then I guess it was just yesterday that I, I picked this up and I look at news outside of sports, because sometimes what's happening outside of college sports is really important. But there was an article in the New York Times about how the sports gambling industry as an industry has been putting all kinds of pressure on state legislatures to enter into the sports gambling space post-2018 and the PASPA, which I've talked so much about, this federal law that prohibited gambling on sports. And that was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018. And since then, you've seen really the sports gambling market just go on steroids. And this New York Times article looked at how the industry was applying pressure to, uh, on state legislatures. And it's disgusting. I mean, it's just disgusting. But it shows you how important the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries see the sports gambling issue. It didn't talk a lot about any connection to 
the normalization process that I've talked so much about with the NCAA's deal with Genius Sports or the Max deal with Genius Sports. But I think it's an important article because it really speaks to how aggressive these people are. And they're doing it at the state legislative level. And you can bet your bottom dollar that as more and more states, particularly states in the South that cover the SEC, where there's been, I think, more historical resistance at a values level, at a morals level to gambling at all, when you see the normalization coming into the southern states, then I think you have the perfect environment for the Power Five conferences, the Big Ten, the SEC, Big 12 maybe, really jumping into the sports betting space headfirst. And it is growing at a breathtaking pace. And that was one of the things that this Times article really pointed out. The kind of numbers that they're talking going forward are just unimaginable. Everybody wants to get a piece of the action. And the same is going to be true for the Power Five conferences. And I had said that those deals could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. As this betting market matures, it could be in the billions. We could be talking a B here in terms of the kind of deals that the Power Five conferences can do with companies in the gambling industry. And then another thing that I want to talk about, again, I think I'm going to do a separate episode on this because I just find it so interesting. And it's seemingly unrelated, but I think it's important. Just last week, Harvard and Yale announced that they are opting out of the U.S. News and World Report rankings for a year. They're basically suspending their participation. And they're trying to send a message here that they think that this whole ranking thing is out of control, that it's not reliable, and that the emphasis on ranking, which leads to an emphasis on trying to get your numbers up, your selectivity numbers, your SAT numbers up, all that stuff, that the focus on that has done a disservice to an admissions policy that's geared more towards equity and equality and access. And I thought it was a really interesting move, and they are heavy hitters. And I think what Harvard and Yale are doing here can have enormous impact. Now, I'll talk more about that. I do think there is a potential connection here when you look at some of the dynamics that have developed in higher education and the reliance on how you're perceived. And it goes back to the very beginning of the discussion of the relationship between college sports and higher education back into the late 19th century and early 20th century. And that is what do universities actually crave and how do they go about getting it? And I've talked about that at length over the course of this podcast. And then, of course, I mentioned this earlier, the, this Drake Group webinar, which was supposed to be on the possibility of athletes being employees and maybe having collective bargaining rights and all that stuff. And this was really a replay of that webinar in May on unionization that uh, really turned into a lecture from Andy Zimbalist, who moderated that panel and is the president of the Drake Group, and Bob Costas on the virtues of the student part of student-athlete. The very beginning of this webinar had that same tone, but there were some interesting things that came up there that I think are worth discussing, and so I'll do a separate episode on that. There's a lot to unpack there. So now let, let me start with the first part of the title of this episode, and that is the Warnock-Walker election, the special election that's going to be held in December. A lot of people, I think, really aren't focusing on that as much from a college sports standpoint, at least, because the belief is that the Democrats, quote unquote, control the Senate. And I have used that term, but it's really a little misleading. And I wish I had done a better job of not just making that blanket statement. Because when you have a perfectly split 
Senate between Democrats and Republicans, and their independents play into that too. But you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, is an technically an independent, but he caucuses with the Democrats, so he gets counted on the Democrat ledger in terms of the balance of power. So you had a 50-50 Senate, which means that in the event of a tie on legislation, under the Constitution, the vice president comes in as the president of the Senate. That's one of the roles that the vice president serves. They are the president of the United States Senate. And Kamala Harris would cast the tie-breaking vote. I don't think that's happened in this last Congress. So the Congress that's in place right now is the 117th Congress in January. We'll move into the 118th Congress. So technically, the Democrats can control the Senate, so to speak, because they control the White House. And that gives the Democrats the ability to select the committee chairperson. And that is a very important prerogative because the committee chairmanships really matter in terms of what issues make it to a committee, what issues make it out of committee and to a full Senate vote. And in a kind of a normal Congress where one party had a clear majority, you didn't have any concerns about how that operated at the committee level. But in a 50-50 Senate, you have some unique circumstances. And the last time we had a 50-50 Senate was in 2000, 2001, and that was the Bush-Gore election. And the Senate leaders sat down and they hammered out what's called a power-sharing agreement. And under that agreement, you basically had guaranteed gridlock. That agreement required an equal number of senators from each party on each committee. And although the chairperson was selected, by the party that controlled the White House, the authorities of the chair were really reduced because of this 50-50 voting structure. The reason that that power-sharing agreement is consequential is that we had the exact same thing with the Congress that was elected in 2020 and seated in early 2021. They entered into Senate Resolution 27, and it is virtually identical to the power-sharing agreement from 2000-2001. And so what we have seen in this Congress, the 117th Congress, is that on issues that are divisive along party lines, partisan politics issues, nothing can get done. There is a provision under this power-sharing agreement for a committee chair to use some complicated political maneuver and political machination to try to get a bill out of a gridlocked committee, but it's cumbersome. And I don't know if that's happened at all in this Congress. And then you have some limits on the filibuster, and they're not consequential in my judgment. But the primary features and components of this power-sharing agreement are really designed to neutralize the two parties. So they really aren't going to be able to get anything done on an issue that has a partisan component to it. And that's exactly what's happened with the college sports issues. However you frame them, whatever side you're on, since the election in 2020, not a single bill that's been introduced by a senator from either party has made it to even a committee debate. We've had these broad hearings dictated in large measure 
by the NCAA and Power Five's lobbyists and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. But we haven't had any legislation move, and I think it's in large part because of this built-in gridlock through the power-sharing agreement. I think it also shines a bright light on how aggressive the Power Five were in the summer of 2020 before the elections in November of 2020, when they really pressed the gas and they sent that joint letter to the leaders in both chambers, and they wanted something done immediately to kill the snake and get a bill that would end the athletes' rights movement. And that was an important inflection point, in my judgment, in the evolution of the NCAA Power Five's campaign in the Senate. And they didn't get it. It didn't happen. So you had the November elections. Again, I've said this before. I don't think anybody was really predicting that the Republicans were going to lose control of the Senate in the 2020 elections. And then I think you really started to see the wheels coming off the NCAA's campaign to end the athletes' rights movement. And I think that's why you saw the NCAA and Power Five fundamentally change their strategy heading into January of 2021. And they had the Austin suit teed up in the U.S. Supreme Court. They pulled out of voluntary rulemaking. They were renewing their effort in the Senate for last-ditch preemption. This is before the Austin decision. So you had all all these events in the summer of 2021 that I talked so much about. But nothing was going to happen in Congress because of the gridlock that's built in through this power-sharing agreement. And that's why you had all of the in-system stakeholder spokespeople like Mark Emmert and Greg Sankey and Jerry Moorhead, and Roger Wicker, and Lindsey Graham, and Tommy Tuberville, all these people reinforced by the sports media saying, well, we're really looking to the midterms. We really need to look to the midterms. Why? Nobody really unpacked what the hell that really meant, what that meant coming from those people is that we need a Republican-controlled Senate to get our way and impose our will because we couldn't do it in the 117th Congress. We want to be able to do it in the 118th Congress. So with this new Senate shaping up, and we still don't know because we have this Georgia special election hanging out there, we have gridlock again, potentially. But the reason that I wanted to talk about the importance of this Warnock-Walker race is that if Warnock wins, the Democrats have an absolute majority in the Senate And this power sharing agreement would dissolve on its own terms. So under that agreement back in 2000, 2001, and then under this agreement from 2020 to the present, the power sharing agreement only applies and is only relevant really when there is a quote unquote 50-50 Senate. And if Warnock wins, then that gives the Democrats a lot more flexibility in terms of how they manage their committees, how the committees look from a number standpoint in terms of Democrat-Republican membership. And you may see a bill in that scenario, assuming that Warnock wins, you may see a bill that is Democrat-friendly. Whatever that means, that's all an open question. And I'm going to talk about that when I go through all these bills. But You have the possibility of some movement here that wasn't possible in the last Congress, but it also then removes any restrictions on the filibuster. Remember that Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, he introduced a bill in September of 2020. He reintroduced it in September of 2022, and it is a train wreck for the athletes. It ends the athletes' rights movement, and Roger Wicker has been in this up to his eyeballs. And he desperately wants to shut down the athletes' rights movement. So he uh, was saying all along that the midterm elections were basically going to dictate the the future of college sports without coming out and saying it. And in that interview with a Sportico's legal expert, 
Wicker just came out and said, up yours to the athletes and the uh, those who support athletes' rights. And he said, if any bill comes from the Democrats that even inches towards recognizing these athletes as free Americans and perhaps as employees or giving them the right to engage in collective bargaining or any revenue sharing or anything that moves the needle from the militant opposition to those issues, he's going to filibuster that bill. And that was just breathtaking to me, that Roger Wicker was saying that he would take to the floor of the United States Senate to throw his body in front of any bill that treated the black male profit athletes in football and men's basketball as free Americans. And he hasn't been called out on those terms. So we'll pay real close attention to this Georgia special election and I think Warnock's going to win for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Georgia and I'm in touch with my folks there. I was actually in Georgia last month for a conference and I got together with some of my old people. And we were talking about the Walker Warnock race. And of course, this was before the election. And I think there are a lot of people who otherwise uh, may have been inclined to just vote straight ticket. Republican, as a lot of people in Georgia do, who resisted that temptation and they split their ticket so they could vote for Brian Kemp for governor, Republican candidate for governor, and then either abstain or vote for Warnock or some third party candidate in the Senate race because they just couldn't stomach voting for Herschel Walker. That issue is now really not that important. I just don't think there's going to be a lot of motivation for the Republicans. And I also think that Trump having announced that he's running in 2024 is going to be a problem because Walker and Trump have a connection. And as we know from the midterms, those candidates, national candidates who were sticking by Trump didn't do so well, you know. So I think Warnock is likely to win that race. And if he does, it's going to be real interesting to see what happens with these committee chairmanships, with the composition of these committees. And we're going to then do a real hard look and reassessment of the three committees that are so important in this case, and the only three committees in which hearings have been held on these college sports issues and the athletes' issues. And that's the Commerce Committee in the Senate, because they have original jurisdiction over sports-related issues, and they also are the committee that would grant preemption. Then you have the Judiciary Committee, where one hearing was held in the Senate in July of 2020. They have jurisdiction because the NCAA and Power Five are asking for an absolute, and in some cases, retroactive active antitrust immunity so that they can't be sued under federal free competition laws. And then the third committee that's held hearings is the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And that committee has jurisdiction because the NCAA and Power Five are asking for a provision from Congress that says that athletes cannot, as a matter of federal law, be employees of their universities. And that provision's gotten virtually no discussion. And they come from a, of an interesting variety of advocacy standpoints. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit when I get to this Drake Group webinar that, that occurred last week, because the absence of discussion on that crucial issue was really stunning to me, given the topic that they were supposed to be discussing. And the title was uh, Students, Employees, or Both. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion about the fact that the NCAA and Power Five and their Republican compatriots have four or five bills pending right now that have been introduced that would make it impossible for athletes to be employees as a matter of federal law. It didn't come up. I think a primary reason it didn't come up is because that's the very position that the Drake Group advocates in its official positions. They don't want these athletes to be able to sue under antitrust laws 
to challenge compensation limits, including name, image, and likeness. And they don't want these athletes to be employees. And they're on the record as saying that. So, I mean, I guess that explains why it wasn't introduced by the moderator or the first person to go, the president of the Drake group, Andy Zimbalist. And then nobody else talked about it. I just find that really mind-blowing. But there are likely to be a substantial movement in the existing committees if Warnock wins, because the Democrats would have a clear majority. So we'll pay attention to all that stuff. And it will have an impact on how these college sports issues play out going forward. And uh, now I want to turn to lead one. And as the title of this episode suggests, I'm going to talk about uh, lead one's battle against itself in terms of its messaging and the public face it is putting on that messaging. But before I get into what I had prepared to talk about, I guess I should note that I'm just on the backside of about an hour and 15 minute break that I took to listen to a lead one webinar on Title IX and the impact of Title IX on what's going on in college sports. And the title of this webinar, let's see, is Professionalization of College Sports and Equity Concerns. Does Title IX apply? (laughs) That's an interesting question. They had four panelists, I guess. One was kind of acting as the moderator, but we had two Title IX attorneys, and it was really good to have the experts here talking about it. And then they had uh, Karen Weaver, who I've talked quite a bit about. She has a great podcast called University Trustees and Presidents. And I have listened to some of her stuff. I like what she's done. But one of the panelists, let's see, Arthur Bryant, who is an attorney with Bailey Glasser, and he's done all kinds of Title IX work. He's really been a pioneer in some of the early Title IX cases. And I love the way he approached the issues. He was very straightforward, very clear. And I think put to bed some myths that get propagandized around Title IX. The setup for this was really interesting because they were leaning into a quote from Mark Emmert in that bizarre interview that he gave to Christy Dosh on September 11th. And I did an episode on that on September 17th called Mark Emmert Unplugged. And some of the comments that Emmert made were just stunning in their ignorance. And one of them was that Emmert said that if athletes became employees, then Title IX wouldn't apply, and that would be a terrible thing for female athletes. And I heard that, and I'm like, what in the world? I'm an attorney, uh, but I'm not a Title IX attorney. I didn't do any Title IX work. It's a very complicated area of the law, and we need the experts weighing in on this. But they used that absurd statement as a springboard into a discussion of Title IX. And basically, there was unanimity on one point, and that is that Mark Emmert doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And Bryant made the observation that really I had when I saw the title of this, it's like, why are we even asking this question? Of course, Title IX applies to college sports and the employment context. And the fact that we're even having to ask that question because of a statement from the president of the NCAA speaks to how poor the leadership has been. And I guess I'll just leave it at that. But it was, I thought, a pretty good discussion. And it's important to have the experts talking about these things. Not people like Greg Sankey. When you go to the mainstream media, you go to the sports media, and you're getting comments from people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And you get some of these absurd statements like the one we heard from Mark Emmert on September 11th. And I guess I should also note another irony, and that is that we're having this discussion about Title IX 
sponsored by an organization that represents FBS athletics directors. It is a 501c6 nonprofit entity, which means that it is operating essentially as a trade association, an advocacy group for the interests of the members that comprise the organization. And it is Power Five and Group of Five athletics directors. And there are, I think, 130 members of Lead One, and 91% of those members are men. I mean, we have all these discussions about Title IX, and we talk about inequities in, in college sports, but you need look no further than the membership of Lead One itself to identify one of the most egregious gender equity issues in all of college sports. And instead of talking about that, we're talking about whether Title IX would apply to the employment setting. And I just, again, these ironies are just head spinning. And I would just say when it comes to Title IX, and I've said this time and time again, the NCAA has a horrible track record going back to the 1970s when it openly opposed the application of Title IX to the big time sports industrial complex. And before we start having all these nice conversations about how Title IX may or may not apply to some of the new features in the marketplace, like name, image, and likeness, or employee status. We need to go back to root causes. And as long as the decision makers look like Mark Emmert, or look like Greg Sankey, or look like 91% of the FBS athletics directors, nothing is going to change from within. And so we're then left with litigation and perhaps additional legislation. Or maybe, and this didn't come up at this webinar today, the Office of Civil Rights will start taking Title IX seriously and come in and exercise its enforcement authorities with some purpose and some aggressiveness. We're not seeing that. And I think so much of that is the product of a mindset in the leadership that Title IX is just this thing that we give a parade wave to, and then we ignore. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the NCAA, and this was made very clear in the Kaplan report that came out last year, these decision makers don't really give a damn about Title IX. And this pattern repeats itself again and again and again. And Dr. Weaver made some really important observations tied into this Kaplan report, and that is that women's sports have been held hostage, particularly women's basketball. That really is what the Kaplan report was about. But women's basketball, which could be one of the most valuable assets in all of college sports from a financial standpoint and marketing and branding opportunities, it's been held hostage to this kind of belief that women's sports simply can't have the same market potential as men's sports. And I think that's a self-fulfilling way of thinking about this. And I, I just would love to see college sports break out of it. But again, you're back to the same problem, the same people who created this mess are now sitting in decision-making chairs and they're being forced to look at ways to clean up their mess. And it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen from the internal decision-makers and the voluntary regulation of college sports, which was once the NCAA's sole domain. Now it's the Power Fives after this constitutional makeover. So what had me thinking about the lead one versus lead one framework was an interview that Tom McMillan who is the president of Lead One, gave to Paul Feinbaum, who is an ESPN talking head. He has a four-hour show every day. He talks and talks and talks. A lot of it's call-in stuff, and it's really good fodder for the fan base and the message board 
kind of people. And it runs through the SEC's interests. It is really an SEC-oriented show. And of course, the SEC and ESPN are joined at the hip. And there's some people I know who listen to Feinbaum every day and just can't do it. You know, <laughs> don't have four hours to blow like that. But part of the setup is you get these people calling in. It's a call-in show and they're chattering back and forth about all the message board stuff. And then Feinbaum will interview somebody. And a lot of those interviews are pretty short. And he gets a pretty impressive list of people. But in my foray into Feinbaum's material, you really are getting status quo interest. And Feinbaum is very good at asking questions that appear to get to some controversial issues. But the people who he has on the show are answering them largely through only one uh, viewpoint, and that's the viewpoint of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, particularly the Power Five, and more particularly the SEC. So it has this infomercial component to it, and sometimes what Feinbaum doesn't ask is as important as what he does ask. And this interview was no different because he brings McMillan on in his capacity as the president of Lead One. But Feinbaum doesn't tell us what Lead One is, what they do, who they represent, or the fact that Tom McMillan is a paid advocate for the interests of the membership of Lead One. We don't get any of that. So if you listen to this interview, you would get the impression that Tom McMillan is working for this company that has the best interests of college sports and college athletes at heart. And he is a neutral, omniscient sage on college sports issues. And I've said this before, McMillan has a great resume. He was a congressman in the early 90s. I think he was just one, a one-term congressman from Maryland, and he understands the lay of the land in D.C. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was a phenomenal basketball player, college pro. He was on the 72 Olympic team that got screwed out of a gold medal. But I just find it really interesting when I listen to McMillan, he's very, very skilled at presenting himself as above the fray. He's just looking down and offering these comments that he thinks are important to look at the big picture in college sports and some of the dynamics in college sports. And his resume is one that gives him credibility. But the fact of the matter is when he speaks to Paul Feinbaum or to anybody else, he is acting as a paid advocate for the interests of Power Five and Group of Five athletics directors. And I think that McMillan also served on the University of Maryland Board of Trustees or Board of Governors, however they have it structured. And that's important experience, but he hasn't really been in the trenches. He hasn't worked in an athletics department. He hasn't coached. He hasn't been really on the front line at the institutional level, but he has acquired the language of higher education and some of the tactics of higher education. And one of them is that it's as important or in some cases more important, how you message and how your message is perceived than what you actually do. And the gap between what Lead One is saying and what it's expressing to the outside world, and its new website's a good example of that, and what it actually wants Congress to do, or what its membership wants the future of college sports to look like are on different planets. And I just want to use it as an example of that dynamic. The report cards that Richard Lapchick uses to grade 
college sports in terms of race, gender, and equity. And he's been doing this for a long time. He has an organization called Tides that operates out of the University of Central Florida. And I've been through those reports in detail. But his report cards, when he's looking at the ridiculous whiteness and maleness of the decision makers in college sports, he doles out D's and F's. But then Lapchik also has this interesting category that he grades that talks about the institution's commitment to diversity and racial equality and gender equality and all that stuff through the programs that it offers. And the NCAA gets an A-plus on that. And I just find that really fascinating. So what Lapchik does is he goes through the NCAA website and looks at all of the committees that they have and all the task forces and all this propaganda that they externalize. But the fact of the matter is the gulf between what they're actually doing and how they're expressing it to the outside world is the difference between an F and an A+. And that comical gap is not unique to higher education. You see that in the woke movements in uh, the corporate world and people trying to sell diversity, equality, and equity, and sustainability, and eco-friendly policies, and all that stuff to try to gin up business. But then what they're actually doing doesn't always align with that. But higher education has perfected that element of hypocrisy at the institutional level to an art form. And you see that through the conflicted messaging that has come out on some of the civil rights issues, the messaging that came out after George Floyd's murder, and then The lack of any action on the backside of that that had any real impact on the lives of African-American athletes. And I've talked about that at some length as well. But what uh, McMillan is doing is using that same tactic to lead stakeholders to believe that lead one is all about equity and inclusion and diversity. And that was really the face that was put on this webinar today. The lead one's talking about Title IX and it cares about Title IX. (laughs) its membership makes a mockery of gender equity. It's important to understand that Lead One has positioned itself as what I call a narrative launderer for the Transformation Committee and the Power Five interests. And Lead One has had an honored seat at the table in the discussions in this Transformation Committee. And the way that the minutes of the Transformation Committee are put together, you really don't know what Lead One is, what interests it represents. And there is not a wit's difference between the interests of the athletics directors who comprise the membership of Lead One and the interests of the people who are the dominant actors on the Transformation Committee. In fact, as I have noted before, Julie Cromer, who is the co-chair of the Transformation Committee, sits on the board of directors of Lead One. Not a word of that. You are not going to see that in the minutes of the Transformation Committee, and you're not going to see that on the Lead One website. There's this suggestion of false independence when they are all reading from the same page and drinking from the same trough. So what I'm going to do is just go through the interview and talk about the points that came up and how McMillan, time and time again, while trying to speak the language of athletes' rights and the language of equity and the language of progressive thinking, he lands in the same place as the NCAA and the Power Five Conference commissioners and their lawyers and lobbyists, and that is with protective federal legislation that will shut down the athletes' rights movement. 
that's the platform of lead one, and it is increasingly difficult to tease out because of the misdirection. And so Feinbaum asks his question about the coaching search process because you have schools firing coaches at an unprecedented rate. McMillan comes in and he's talking about these are tough decisions and they're costly. And he talks about the fact that there's $600 million in dead money in the buyout market, all the money that universities have put aside to pay coaches who turn out to be mediocre coaches, they get fired and then they get paid tens of millions of dollars not to work. (laughs) McMillan says that over the last decade, that number is upwards of $600 million. Who knows? But it's an important point to make. And it shows just how ridiculous the business model is right now and how money is being diverted away from the athletes who actually earn it and produce it. And to these black holes where hundreds of millions of dollars just get dumped and nobody's really talking about that. So then Feinbaum takes that basic question and then puts a new spin on it. And he says, you know, I know your group's taking a good look at minority hires, but what have you found? In that question, Feinbaum is clearly suggesting here that McMillan has no dog in this race. He's a neutral observer, and he's just going to look at this marketplace and give it to you straight. And so McMillan says, yeah, there have been some problems with minority hires. And because of that, we, Lead One, did this coalition with the Minority Opportunities Athletic Association. And we queried eight of the top search firms in the country, and they gave us their data. They just volunteered it. And we could see progress being made. But the fact remains that less than 20% of ADs and coaches, and you name the sport, are people of color. And the fact of the matter is that 70% of the athletes are athletes of color. So there's sort of this equity disconnect that's real out there. Now, search firms don't make the final decision. Obviously, the president and the boards do. But the fact is that the search firms are gatekeepers in a way. So listening to that, you would think that McMillan believes that there's a genuine problem with minority hires when the membership of the organization he is speaking for in this interview is overwhelmingly white. And he shifts responsibility to these search firms. And it's a really interesting way to exculpate lead one and the obvious problems with the racial and gender composition of its membership. And it's, yeah, these search firms, we really want to get some information from them, and we we really want to make sure that they're committed to diversity and equity. And then he slips in, just as an aside, oh, yeah, of course, the presidents make the final decision, but boy, we got to look at these search firms. And he has just disappeared. The athletics directors... And the fact of the matter is that, at least traditionally, and this may be less true with the reliance on these search firms, but traditionally, the presidents and the boards rely almost exclusively on the recommendation of the athletics director when it comes to hiring a new coach. So these athletic directors, boy, they're taken out of the loop here. We're going straight from the search firm to the presidents and the boards. But he goes on to say that this emphasis on minority hiring, he says it's going to take some time, but it needs to be done because college football and basketball leadership should look like the athletes on the field. Ay, ay, ay. And then Feinbaum switches to the midterms and he says, based on what I know, the mixed results is not going to help 
what some people were hoping for. <laughs> yeah, people like Roger Wicker and Greg Sankey and Tommy Tuberville. And so McMillan talks about the lame duck session and other important things that are going on. So he says it's unlikely that Congress is going to get to a national nil standard. And then he's talking about the proposed legislation. And he says the problem is really more on the Democrat side because they would like to see a much more expanded nil bill that includes greater player benefits, possibly including employment rights and collective bargaining. And that's an impasse. And there you have McMillan channeling Roger Wicker, who said the same thing in that Sportico interview. This is all about these Democrats and these bad bills. And if they would just let us get our nil thing and everything would just be fine. You know, there was that, that's really a, a misleading way of characterizing the pending legislation. And then he says, but this impasse begs the question of why doesn't the NCAA and why don't the conferences come to grips with the fact that in the short run, there's probably not going to be a bill that they want. And McMillan says there are ways that they can deal with some of this, but the road we're heading down is a road towards full payola, paying athletes without regard to their publicity rights. And I think that's a slippery slope for college sports. So again, McMillan's trying to be the omniscient neutral observer saying, well, obviously the NCAA and the conferences are now incentivized in this new legislative environment to try to talk about changing the way they think about this to end this labor dispute. This is, that's essentially what this is, a labor dispute. But that's not going to happen. Because on the backside of that, it's like, well, we can't have full payola. That's a slippery slope for college sports. And then McMillan transitions from that into this patently false narrative that we have a Wild West market because of all of the differences between these state laws. And he said, I think there needs to be a harmonization of that, meaning a federal nil standard without any acknowledgement that these state laws now are irrelevant because no state is paying attention to those laws and not a single state that has a state name, image, and likeness law has taken a single enforcement action to enforce any of the provisions of the state law. And then he talks about this name, image, and likeness thing slipping into this fuzzy area where it's no longer name, image, and likeness. It's just about paying the price for an athlete based upon their abilities. And that's not where we want to go in college sports. So again, you have this tension between what lead one is actually advocating and then the BS it's putting out for public consumption. So using the lap chick grading scale, Tom McMillan and lead one get an A plus for their bullshit, but they get an F for their policies and their actions. And then McMillan closes it out with this, talking about this Wild West market. He says, but the NCAA is going to have to grab this issue and begin to regulate it. Otherwise, it's going to be so out of control, it's going to be hard to bring it back under control, even with congressional help. So this is the sky is falling on steroids. We need something immediately, immediately. And again, this was a short interview. But just in this eight-minute interview, 
Tom McMillan just piles on false narrative after false narrative, deflection after deflection. And when it comes to what he actually wants, he comes back around to the same old stuff that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have wanted since 2019 when they began their assault in Congress to end the athletes' rights movement. So again, this is the new face of the propaganda, and it's being driven by what happened in the midterms. So I'm going to talk about this in other contexts because there's some interesting things going on, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, that I think are going to inform how stakeholders, the the power brokers in college sports, are looking at the new legislative and legal environment going forward. But we really haven't heard many direct comments about the impact of the midterms on the discussion in Congress on college sports. So we'll be on the lookout for that. So I want to go ahead and wrap this thing up. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.